How will AI shape society? And how will society shape AI? I'm Katrina Ingram, host of the AI for Society Dialogues, a podcast that explores the work of researchers from the University of Alberta, a global leader in artificial intelligence research. Music and sound are integral in shaping culture and are fundamental aspects of how we interact with the environment. I'm Jeffrey Rockwell, director of the Cool Institute for Advanced Study at the University of Alberta. Math and music share a history that dates back to ancient civilizations, and now they're colliding in new ways. Artificial intelligence and machine learning is playing an important role in helping to catalog and process vast amounts of auditory data, from linguistics to natural soundscapes to experimental music compositions. Dr. Michael Frischkopf is an ethnomusicologist who is deploying the power of AI to formulate and test new hypotheses about the relationship between music and culture, speech and individuality. Here's our host, Katrina Ingram, with Dr. Michael Frischkopf. Dr. Frischkopf, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Katrina. Now, you started out in mathematics and completed an undergrad in math, and then you followed that up with graduate degrees focused on music. And I'm wondering if you can talk about the relationship between math and music in general, because I don't think it's something that people typically connect. And I'm wondering if you can share how your foundations in math relate to your education and research in music. Yeah, that's a big question. Um, I think people often observe that there's some sort of connection there, but... It operates on multiple levels, I feel. So there's um, sort of the more practical aspect that music theory can be a little bit mathematical, um, that acoustics obviously is mathematical, uh, that people can compose algorithmically. I remember I did a composition class um, when I was an undergrad and chose to do that, to, to actually do Conway's Game of Life and translate it into music. So there's those sort of, I see as, Using math as a tool, you could do statistical analysis, for example, and doing a music analysis, using math as a tool somehow. And then there's a deeper connection that actually goes beyond acoustics, I think, that has to do with almost the structure of musical thinking and mathematical thinking. I think in both realms, you're dealing with abstractions that in some sense don't really exist in the physical world. And it's, it's a bit odd to think about that. Music is not a representational art. You know, so it's not like, uh, well, much of painting isn't these days, but I mean, in the past, it had that, it, at least it has that representational capacity. Uh, music, not so much. It can try, but it doesn't, it doesn't really do that. And mathematics also is very abstract. I used to be interested in mathematical logic and you get at these foundational questions like, you know, what is this reality of mathematics anyway? It doesn't seem to exist in the real world. Does it go beyond? the real world, but then different mathematicians have come up with different uh, versions of that reality. So I remember studying one mathematician um, who was very famous for topology, L.E.G. Brower, who had his own version of mathematics called intuitionism. And he developed mathematics in a completely different way. And I remember my math professor saying, it's almost like math developed on another planet. Wow, I feel um, like I've opened the uh, Pandora's box here with <laughs> well, this question. Well, there's a lot. Yeah, I don't mean to go on, on too long, but the point is I think there's connections on many, many different levels. And, you know, sometimes you find people are good at music and good at math. There's another aspect I hadn't thought to mention, but um, you kind of practice both. They're, they have similar 
methods of learning. So in order to do math, I don't know if you've studied math much, but to do math, you have to do a lot of exercises. It, it, as you do it more, I remember I'm no longer good at integration, but at the time I was studying you know, integral calculus in high school, I was very good at integrating. You could throw anything at me and I'd integrate it. So you, you get that by just doing it over and over again. And music too, you mm. get better by practicing. So I think there's, there's connections on many, many different levels, but I don't think that's why I went into <laughs> music grad school. As an undergrad, I was interested in music theory and I was interested in music composition. And I think those two are somehow similar to mathematics, the discovery process of mathematics, or maybe algorithmic thinking also, as you would find in computer science. But when I got out and I had my first job, I was doing, um, I worked for a company called Bold, Brannick and Newman that basically developed the internet as we know it today. Back in the 60s, it was called the ARPANET and it was a defense project. So I went to work for them in the 80s and uh, I was working on network analysis and, and networks, uh, designing and analyzing computer networks, something that's come back more recently I can talk about later. Um, and then I just suddenly felt this urge to be, to kind of experience life. I didn't wanna be anymore in this box of a computer and programming and analyzing. I was doing a lot of simulating and I decided I wanna travel and I wanna experience other cultures. And that led me into ethnomusicology. I actually, it started with a West African music group and then I got interested in West African music and I went to West Africa. And so my journey into ethnomusicology was not coming from mathematics. It was more an escape from mathematics, if I can <laughs> say it that way. So that, that's how I evolved into it. And since then I've brought back the more mathematical reasoning. It's almost like that part of my brain needs to be fed from time to time. So I've done sort of mathematical techniques of music analysis, um, more recently some of the machine learning stuff and social network analysis is another thing that connects also to my background in computer networks. So it keeps on kind of coming back in, in different ways. I don't wanna be trapped in it, but I like having it as an, as an option. Amazing. There's a lot of tangents we could go down there, but let's. Uh, I'm going to focus us a bit on the machine learning piece, and I, I want to talk a little bit about a current project that you're working on, um, which would actually have been really useful to me in my prior work in community radio. And it's a searchable audio repository uh, that has a very practical outcome of making music information retrieval a lot easier. I'm just wondering if you can tell us how this project came together and about the team that's working on the project. Yeah, so actually I was um, I was in Kazakhstan of all places at a meeting of the International Council for Traditional Music. And I heard a paper, someone talking about um, kind of clustering musics of the world, which ha is an idea that goes way back in ethnomusicology. It suddenly occurred to me that one of the first projects that aimed to do this was Alan Lomax's Cantometrics, where he took thousands of songs and sort of classified them by measuring various features. There were 37 different features of each song that he measured, and then he tried to use that to cluster them and to relate them to culture. And it suddenly struck me that that would be an interesting machine learning project, that you could use all of this data that he had painstakingly assembled back in the 60s and see if you could train a machine, a neural network, to do that kind of um, evaluation and clustering. Because one of the criticisms that was thrown at him at the time was he had, I forget, but several hundred different 
cultural areas that were defined by anthropologists. I mean, this is a separate project that he didn't do. And then he took 10 songs, or he said he could do with just 10 songs for each of these cultural areas, and that that would be enough to represent it, because basically they're all the same after those 10. And so a lot of ethnomusicologists sort of said, hmm, that doesn't really sound right. That's not our experience going and living in these places. There's many different styles of music and singing and you know, which 10? So then I was thinking, well, if you could do this on a larger scale, instead of four or 5,000 songs or however many he had, suppose you could do a million songs, that might make it a very different project. Well, how can we do that? A few things have changed since his day. One is, and this relates to your, your problem of searching an archive, is this idea of ubiquitous computing or maybe ubiquitous sensing where everybody goes around recording these days. You know, it, at first it was the recording devices that, that we use in field work, but then it was just the phone that everybody has. So everyone's recording and traveling around the world and recording. So you really have a lot of samples sort of crowdsourced coming back. The problem is how do you categorize these things? Sometimes people don't know what it is. So if you could develop good machine learning tools, artificial neural networks that could categorize, that could label audio, then maybe you could do something like what Alan Lomax was trying to do. But then there's other things that are possible. Let's say you just want to search for something. Maybe you could do it. I mean, if all you have is the audio, it's like searching for a needle in a haystack. You would go crazy trying to listen to all that audio and find where a particular person speaks, a particular instrument plays. You know, where does that happen? It's not easy to do. Um, classifying, you know, being able to see all the music of a particular place or a particular culture. So those kinds of search and sorting problems um, could be made a lot easier. People in, in music information retrieval have been working on this for a long time, but I thought maybe my unique contribution might be towards ethnomusicology, that most of them, they tend to be working on collections of popular music. I know there's the, the million song data set or something, and there are tools like Shazam that do a pretty good job at recognizing what song is that. If you just hold up your phone, you know, it will, it will tell you. But that's a very different problem because these are songs that have fixed studio recording, usually a studio, but anyway, they're fixed recordings that keep on being replayed and you can identify them that way. Whereas in ethnomusicology, you got to make a field recording. First of all, it never repeats exactly, right? Because it's a field mm -hmm. recording. And even if it's the same song, it's going to be performed differently and so on. So you can't create those sort of very precise signatures of each song that they're able to do in that general machine in music information retrieval problem. The other aspect of music information retrieval is symbolic. And so there you're dealing with, let's say MIDI or scores or something like that. And we rarely have that in ethnomusicology. So we're dealing with, you know, general recordings. And this could be extended then to other kinds of recordings like, like the recording that we're making right now or uh, a recording of birdsong or, or any kind of recording where the recordings don't necessarily repeat, they're kind of one-offs and you're still trying to identify attributes, you're trying to label, you're trying to categorize. So th there's a lot there. Um, I'm actually going to maybe focus in on a little bit of the practical um, rather mm -hmm. than the theoretical just to start with. Sure. So when, you know, we talk about machine learning, we talk about supervised learning, you know, there's a real practical problem or challenge in terms of just labeling databases of audio. And I know that's something that we used to have long discussions about when I worked in radio is, is how are we going to catalog our music collection? What are the labels that we're going to attach to this? How are we going to organize things? So I'm wondering just practically, how did you come up with labels for sound? How are you categorizing music? What does that process look like? 
Yeah, well, that's a difficult one because, again, the, the popular music, music information retrieval people have large data sets which are already labeled. They might have to add some labels, but a lot of it has been done because these are published recordings, so they have metadata associated with them. As I said, the first thing that I went to was Cantometrics, which is this big data set. I had the good fortune to be able to work with Anna Wood, Anna Lomax Wood, who's Alan Lomax's daughter, and she agreed to share the data set. So that was a large, well, fairly large, nothing like the million song data set, but maybe about 5,000 songs, each one with these 37 parameters, plus information about the cultural area where they come from and you know, performers and, and some other metadata. So that was one data set that was interesting. Another one going to Smithsonian Folkways, because of this longstanding relationship to the Smithsonian, and we had a lot of their catalog data. They've cataloged it, they have some metadata. It isn't as fine-grained as the Lomax stuff, but still, you know roughly where a given track came from, um, you know who's on it. You don't always know all the instruments, so that's a bit of a problem. You certainly don't know where the instruments come in. Lomax didn't have that either, but that's that's hard, you know, to have someone go in and tag where instruments are coming in. But if you if you can, well, I'll talk about another technique for doing that. That's a big, bigger data set. That's about 40,000 tracks. So that seemed like an interesting one. Um, we didn't actually get to the stage of using it, but it's there. Um, there was another one, the International Library of African Music. I got permission to use that from South Africa, which has a lot of tracks, mostly from Southern and, and Central Africa. Um, so those have metadata associated with them already because they're published. For linguistic accent, there was a database from George Mason University that has the same English sentence. I can look it up if you're interested. Spoken by speakers in, I can't remember how many hundred languages. No. Speakers from all around the world, you know, from hundreds, of, not in those languages, but people who are speakers of those languages then saying this English sentence. So you get the accent from all around the world, you know, from Sudan or from China or whatever. For birds, we had databases that Aaron Bain had. Cornell has a big one. I mean, he had collected his own. These things exist as sort of repositories in these different disciplines. Right. We're also doing some work with segmenting speech. So there you would have to have a database of pre-segmented, you know, in phonetics where you're, you're trying to figure out where the different phonemes start and end and so on. So there are things available. If you had to do it yourself, then obviously it would take a very long time and require a lot of people power to do that. So it's better to search for things. Now, the other strategy that we used which is kind of interesting, is to generate artificial data. Let's say we have a sample of a trumpet, a piano, and uh, a flute, and we can play back the samples and we can combine them as we wish. We could combine them se sequentially. We could stack them together in a kind of polyphony. We could put two pianos and one flute. We can do whatever we want. If we have different pitches, we can put different pitches in. And then we can label it because we know what we put in. It's artificial data. Mm -hmm. So using that technique, which Abram Hindle in computer science sort of suggested, I think initially, and then he had a very good undergraduate student, Noan Weninger, who worked on that for a while. And then he and Vadim Bulitko had a grad student who worked on it. Using that technique, you can generate reams of data and it's all labeled. It's all pre-labeled. And then you can train the machine learning algorithm to recognize, oh, that sample had a flute, that sample had a piano in it because it's already been labeled for you. And from there, you might expect that that same machine learning algorithm might work for a general recording. So you could feed it 
a piano concerto, and it would also say, aha, uh -huh, yes, I hear a piano, because it had already learned to do that from the other data. This kind of transfer learning, as they call it, has limitations, but the advantage is you get all the labeled data. Yeah. And I want to, um, you've touched on this a little bit, but I really want to just dig into this um, this idea of, of why audio is so much harder, it seems, than, say, text or images for AI or machine learning really to understand. You know, do you think that's the case? And if so, why do you think that's the case? I think it is the case, and I'm not sure why, is the short answer. Okay. <laughs> um, the slightly longer answer is that I think because sound is a one-dimensional function of time, essentially, it's just pressure against time. And our ears are very good at doing frequency analysis and also spatial analysis and breaking down an audio scene. But when you look at the waveform, as you know, because you deal with sound, you just see this squiggle going up and down. The only thing you can really tell from that squiggle easily is where the sound started, or maybe you can tell where there was an impact. Um, you know, that, that kind of thing may be fairly obvious. But all of the rest of the richness, the fact that the trumpets were over here and the strings are over there and, you know, that uh, there was a major chord here and a minor chord there, that you can't see that in the waveform. And it's hard for to figure out how would you program a computer to do that also? Well, first of all, you have to shift everything to the frequency domain if you're going to, you know, have any hope of doing it. And that involves a lot of digital signal processing which is very tricky to carry out. So even things that you might think are fairly easy that you know we expect computer programs to be able to do in the visual domain, to be able to, for example, trace the outline of, of a face or something, you know, how some of these social media things will put eyebrows on you or a funny nose or something like that. It's not so easy to do with sound because it isn't there spatially. Mm -hmm. So it isn't so obvious how to design an algorithm that would find something, find a feature. It is possible but it's a little bit less obvious. So if I'm just a totally naive computer programmer and I want to find the boundary of an object in an image, I might just start to sort of act like an ant and walk along the image until I find something that looks like it could be a boundary line and then maybe try to trace along it or something. I mean, I haven't done it, but I imagine doing something like that. With sound, you can't do that. You have to transfer it to the frequency domain and then hope that you know some digital signal processing algorithm is going to be able to highlight these different aspects. You know, the other thing it invokes is this sort of ocular centrism of culture generally, and especially academia, we're all focused on text and image and less so on the audio, um, which is supposed to represent a kind of non-academic mm -hmm. environment. Like you can't publish an audio recording as easily. So more effort has gone into that um, optical character recognition. You know, that's a much more well-developed area than speech, although it's gotten a lot better. And if you, if you put up a video now on, on YouTube, Google has amazingly good uh, transcription for English. It's remarkable. So they've yeah. definitely made big strides. And I'm sure it's been, uh, those strides have been made through machine learning, which they're very good at. Yeah. And I'm sure your work is going to add to that and, and make things even better. And we're going to, uh, I'm just going to take us down a slightly different path um, because we've mentioned this term ethnomusicology a few mm -hmm. times and you are an ethnomusicologist. And I think it would be great just to start out with defining what that actually means. What is ethnomusicology? First of all, musicology, which is, you know, should be the study of music generally, has sort of, for various historic reasons, come to mean more the study of Western art music. 
it's turned away from that a bit in the last few decades, but it still has that sort of focus on Western art music as being the elite music, you know, the music of Western civilization, maybe the music that needs to be protected. I mean, all the reasons are not necessarily bad, um, you know, and popular music studies has certainly come up within that. But a long time ago, there was another field called comparative musicology that explicitly tried to go beyond that and sort of extend to the rest of the world. But a lot of that work was being done in as what we say as armchair work, you know, sort of recordings were being made. I mean, it was also the dawn of the recording era, right? So Edison and invented the phonograph and people were making recordings and they're coming back to, you know, the home base. The Berlin Phonogram Archive was one of the first places. And then people would be, oh, you know, they have this kind of scale in Thailand. Let's try to transcribe this and, and sort of compare it. So it was very focused on the musical sound. And then ethnomusicology came along, um, really was established in the 1950s with more of a cultural agenda to look at music in its cultural context and to do field work, to, be, to act more like an anthropologist, to try to get at the meaning of the music for the people who use the music. And so each of these steps has sort of pushed boundaries in different directions. The comparative musicology pushed it to be more global. You know, so what we sometimes call now world music, although that term is controversial, but so extending the scope, it isn't going to be just Western art music. It's going to be all music everywhere, even pushing the boundaries of what is music. Is it also chant? Is it also speech? Is it also poetry? Arguably talking about music, you know, everything, what Christopher Small calls musicking, um, even the study of music, I would consider to be also music. So maybe you could talk about ethnomusicology studying ethnomusicology, that ethnomusicology itself is music in that very extended sense. So you have that kind of broadening of what is music, and then you have the broadening of the context in which music is used. So not just looking at the sound, but you know who's coming to this performance, right? If an ethnomusicologist looked at a Western symphony orchestra concert, they wouldn't be just looking at what music is being played, but who's coming, how are they dressed, what are they doing during the intermission, who fell asleep, all kinds of things like that would become relevant because we're looking at the context and not just the immediate context of performance, but the broader context. Who comes sociologically, you know, who, who can afford it, who is interested in it, who does it exclude advertently or inadvertently? And then going beyond that, what is the cultural context? What is the social context? Uh, how is the music produced? Who's creating it? Who's conducting it? And then I would say the third extension that ethnomusicology brings in is disciplinary one, moving well beyond you know, the frame of music as a, as a discipline, musicology, uh, which has tended to focus on archival work, but, but you know, we could add to that some field work, but also explicitly bringing in theories of literary criticism or, or social theory or political theory economics. Generally, people bring in social sciences and they bring in the humanities and they bring it in pretty freely. Some people have also brought in science. So I'm one of those who's also brought in um, theories from science, from health science, you know, engineering and so on. So to me, it's very open. It's very freeing. It's a long word, ethnomusicology. It has too many syllables, but it, it kind of frees you to look at, at music in a very general sense from any perspective. Um, and looking at the broadest possible context for whatever that, that music is. Wow. So that's ethnomusicology for me, and uh, everybody has their own definition. 
<laughs> Fantastic. Well, that's a very expansive definition. I, I love that. Um, that's the one that drew me into it. You know, that's that's why I went into it because I thought I could do anything. So why not? It sounds like it. You mentioned the Folkways uh, collection and its connection to the U of A. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the significance of that collection and also how it relates to some work that you've done in virtual environments. And I'm thinking specifically about the Folkways in Wonderland project. Moses Ash founded Folkways Records in, I think it was 1948. And it was really an incredible visionary project for its time. You know, at a time when recordings were being made, but they were being made primarily to make money. He wanted to document the world of sound. And he had this sort of expansive definition of music that I mentioned, you know, the whole world of sound, everything. He recorded uh, The Office. He recorded typewriters typing because he correctly presumed that one day typewriters wouldn't exist in offices. And so mm. we better capture it. Uh, there's, you know, recordings of poetry and everything. Of course, the vast majority of the recordings are music. He was sort of an early crowdsourcer in the sense that he didn't record everything himself. He couldn't. So he, he took in recordings that people had collected from different parts of the world. In particular, in Canada, Sam Gesser was very active in working with him. Sam Gesser was an amazing man who, who lived in Montreal and was sort of a music uh, uh, impresario. And so, you know, he collected recordings from Canada, but he also collected from everywhere. And then he released them and he somehow or other, I guess because he had the means to do this, made sure that they all always stayed in print. So you could always order one of these recordings. And I think it was really life-changing for so many people to get hold of these recordings from West Africa. They always, the liner notes were not always perfect because they were kind of a bit anecdotal, almost hearkening back to that 19th century, you know, the Edison recordings kind of coming back to the Berlin Phonogram Archive. I mean, you would get this wax cylinder, but you know, who was recorded on it and what was the significance? And then maybe the recordist didn't know. So in some cases, people didn't know exactly what they had. There were some vague notes, but you know, it was a start. I'm big on the do-it-yourself sort of uh, ethos. And I think he, he really had that nailed. So it was an incredibly important collection. His son, Michael Ash, not surprisingly, became an anthropologist and was interested in the Canadian North and ended up teaching at the U of A. And his father, Moses Ash, would come to visit from New York. And he decided to gift the full set of focus recordings to the U of A. So that's how we acquired it. It's some 2,200 records, which is remarkable when you think that he was putting out pretty much a record a week over those 40 years or so that he was um, putting them out. So we had this complete collection. And Regula Qureshi, my senior colleague, uh, my mentor, who was the only professor of ethnomusicology when I, when I arrived here in 1999, she was a student of Michael Ash, and she was always looking for ways to use those recordings to, you know, I mean, we knew that they existed, but the library had acquired them and sort of distributed them throughout. And her, her dream was to bring them all back together in a single, you know, so you could sort of see them. So finally, when we were able to found, she and I together, we founded Folkways Alive in partnership with Smithsonian Folkways. And we, that dream came true. We were able to establish the museum that you, you've seen of all of the recordings. So it was a very significant resource for people all around the world who ordered the records, but also so many libraries had, had collections. I started at UCLA. They certainly had a complete collection. It was just a pioneering initiative for the collection of music of the world. Now, subsequently, we wanted to do things with it. You know, we had this initiative, the Smithsonian Folkways, or the Folkways Alive at the U of A in partnership with Smithsonian Folkways. 
who we were working with. So one of the ideas I had was, could we embed these recordings in a kind of virtual reality where you would go through this virtual reality together with others and listen together and discuss the recordings and it could become sort of a cyber version of, of the real world. So I was working in partnership with some colleagues in Japan, Michael Cohen and his student, uh, Rasika Rinoera, and we built this open wonderland version of this virtual reality where you could actually do that. It had a huge map of the world and as you approached a recording, you would, st you would start to hear it. So it was sort of simulating distance and everything. And you could go in there with others. The problem with, with it was sort of a technological obsolescence that often afflicts us in technology, that you build this thing, it was done in Java, uh, and then the technology kind of migrated to, to other things. So, so it was, I don't think we could get it up and running now very easily. But it was an interesting development. And we did one other thing also in Open Wonderland and the idea was, hey, maybe because virtual reality has become an alternative reality for so many people, maybe that's a place to study music. That's a place to do ethnomusicology. You could actually do fieldwork in a virtual space. You could set up the virtual space the way you wanted, and you could uh, invite people in and observe their behaviors and so on. So we kind of framed this ethnomusicological project that was not really carried out as a virtual ethnomusicology or an ethnomusicology of virtual spaces. So, you know, that, that sort of idea of how do you study the use of music in, in virtual spaces, um, I think is very important. It's important from a practical point of view, I'm sure for the game designers and so on, but it's also an important sociological problem for ethnomusicology because it is so all consuming for some people. And uh, people like Scott Smallwood are developing games, uh, virtual spaces that really center on sound or augmented reality. We did a project for the Islamic Garden. So we developed with uh, support from Shirk, I developed something called um, Sounding the Garden. It, basically, it, it's an app that has different dimensions. There's one aspect where you see art in the garden, and there's one aspect where you learn more about the flora and fauna of the garden and the architecture. But the part that I contributed with a, with a team that included actually Scott and a bunch of students is sound. So you, we layered sound on top of the garden using a, a Persian poem by a mystical poet named Attar um, called Conference of the Birds. And in Conference of the Birds, he traces these birds on a mystical journey through seven valleys, sort of on their, their mystical journey towards annihilation and realization of God and so on, so, which is a common theme in Sufism. So we divided the garden. We actually mapped out seven zones in the garden. And as you move into a zone, you're going to hear a different soundscape. And we composed those soundscapes ourselves and recorded them ourselves. And then we embedded tracks from a Smithsonian Folkway series done in partnership with the um, Aga Khan Development Network, directed by someone named uh, Feruz Nishinova, where they produced about 10 different recordings in different parts of the Muslim world. And so we were able to use those recordings in this augmented reality. And so once again, you can see the practical application, but there's also possibility to study it. So, you know, we have weather sounds, we had rain and wind and so on, but then you have the real world sounds. In augmented reality, those, those all combine. Mm -hmm. um, so that's an, another interesting dimension, which is certain to become more and more important. Uh, you know, you had the Google Glass, which kind of came and then left, but it, it's definitely gonna come back. Um, it's such an, there's so many possible applications for kind of layering a virtual reality on top of the supposedly real reality. So anyway, it's all real in a sense. And right. so to be able to study that as well as to contribute to it, 
to contribute to it in healthy ways rather than ways that are more exploitive, that violate privacy, that, um, you know, because the AI for society shouldn't just be looking at um, utopian applications, but also take a kind of a hard look at the possible dystopian applications of AI to society. And those do have musical implications. I mean, the displacement of musicians or the kind of monitoring of our every move online or you know, trying to feed us certain kind of music, trying to manipulate the public taste through the media, kind of shutting out music making and turning us all into very passive consumers. Mm -hmm. um, all those are dangers and they've already been manifested you know, through the decades from the dawn of uh, the recorded music era and the, and the dawn of the music industry. But it's going to be intensified by AI for sure. So there's that dystopian aspect of the cyber world or the virtual reality or the augmented reality, which has to be looked at. And then there's also the possible applications sort of for quote unquote good, you know, for empowering music making, for helping music to become more of a, a social force that brings, you know, people greater health and wellness and well-being and, and self-realization. Yeah, and I, I'm glad you brought that up because in some ways I feel like music has led the way when it comes to disruption. So when I think back to, and you've gone back even further, but I was thinking back to the 1990s, I was thinking about Napster and how it arrived on the scene and, and how that really disrupted the music industry. And then, you know, iTunes came along with their 99 right. cent songs and disrupted albums. And then Spotify came along with their all-you-can-eat you know, for nine ninety nine a month, kind of a, a song yeah. menu and, and disrupted iTunes. And, and so it feels like music has been a leader in some ways of this digital disruption. And I'm wondering about as we kind of move towards this um, embracing of everything digital in our world, what do you think the lessons are that we can learn from what happened to music, what happened to the music industry as we move forward and we progress with AI playing kind of this larger role in our landscape? It's more than just the technology, it's the larger systems that tend to manipulate us without us really knowing it. And the, the, the kind of conundrum um, is that it isn't that there's sort of people behind these systems that are pulling all the levers. We're actually all in it and all subject to it. And so I think what's required is a keen awareness of the potential, but also the risks and that's where education is so important. You know, people have to be very critical consumers of all of this stuff. They need to remain aware of how they're being possibly manipulated by these larger systems, these corporate entities that um, claim to be doing good, but in fact are, you know, attuned to the bottom line in the end. That's, that's what drives them. And if some corporate leader decides that, no, that's not what's going to drive me. I want to just, you know, do good in the world. They're going to be taught, turfed out. You know, that, that's just how the, the system works. So all that can, all you can hope for is to kind of ensure that people are critically aware. Education is very important in maintaining that critical awareness. And so eventually, if there's enough demand, they actually will react because it'll, it'll become profitable. Yeah. I want to turn to uh, the idea of music um, and wellness uh, just before mm -hmm. we wrap up. And, you know, we've we've referenced the pandemic uh, tangentially a couple of times. I know that you've worked on a project um, that involved public health and it involved music and it was around um, reducing maternal death in Ethiopia. And I thought mm -hmm. that was a really interesting project. I wonder if you can share some of the details around that. Sure. 
a little bit more broadly, I started doing these kind of developmental projects in um, about 2007 with the Liberian refugees in Ghana. We did a project um, called Giving Voice to Hope with 16 different musical groups that we actually found were on this uh, refugee camp. We worked in partnership with them. Very important, I think, to adopt participatory methods so it's not just an outsider coming in and giving all the instructions. So we worked really in tandem with them. We produced an album which did fairly well. And then I did a, another project called Sanitation in Liberia after a lot of the refugees had gone back. Again, we did a music video this time. We did a song, it got on the air. And then I did a project in Northern Ghana, which was more live music addressing malaria and sanitation in Northern Ghana. Um, again, participatory, we worked with a local musical group. We worked with a bunch of different villages and so on. On that project, there was a, a, a professor of global health who was then here called David Zakis. Uh, a really wonderful guy with such breadth of, of vision. His own area, I think, was um, on health systems, but he was really interested in music, and he invited me to present a couple times at his global health fairs. And he was running this maternal health uh, project, maternal and neonatal health project in Ethiopia. So, you know, we, we sort of arrived at this idea of, well, you know, maybe we could do a song for that. You know, they hadn't really considered that. They were interested in strengthening the health system by training midwives primarily. In Ethiopia, the maternal mortality rate and the neonatal mortality rate are not bad in the urban areas, like in Addis Ababa in the capital. They have good hospitals there. But when you get to the rural areas and the population is very distributed, there it's terrible. It's really tragic. There's incredible, uh, incredibly high rates of maternal and um, neonatal death. And one of the reasons is people aren't going to the clinics. So on the one hand, they wanted to strengthen the health systems. They wanted to train midwives to make sure the clinics are well-staffed, that referral procedures are in place so that if a woman does go to the clinic, but she really needs a hospital, they can quickly refer her and so on. So they tried to, to do all of that in the big project. This is a big project. So this song turned out to be a very small little addition to this massive project but a very effective one. The idea was, well, you can do, you can spend millions and millions of dollars that Global Affairs Canada may very well do in many parts of the world, but it's kind of like you can provide all of this infrastructure, but if people aren't gonna make use of it, it's not gonna do any good. And so in the end, you often have a behavioral change problem, a more of a social problem, a cultural problem, and not just a, a physical infrastructure problem or a staffing problem in this case. So they had these clinics and they were training the midwives, but they didn't always have people going to the clinics. Why? Because it's a tradition to give birth in the home. And who enforces the tradition often? It's the husbands. Now, Ethiopia is a big country with dozens of languages, but there's two main languages. There's Amharic, and there's Oromifa. We were thinking, and, and meanwhile, I had a colleague who was directing Folkways Alive for a while, John Kurtzer, who's, who, his area is African music, especially popular music. So he knew a guy named Thomas Gobina. He's an Ethiopian um, bass player, but he's also a producer and he lives in Washington, DC. So when I asked him for a contact, he, he suggested Thomas. So I went to Thomas, we started to plan a song. First it was an album, but we, it turned out we couldn't really afford an album. So just a, a very small initiative, just one song that would strike some of the right notes. It would address 
husbands in particular. I mean, it would address the whole society, but particularly it would address men for this women's issue. And we would have two singers, a male and a female, one singing in Amharic, that was Zeratu Kebede, who's probably the most famous female singer in Ethiopia. So we're very lucky to get her. She's really, you know, widely loved in Ethiopia. And then singing in Oromifa, a guy named Tadele Gemechu. And it was Thomas who was able, you know, it was thanks to him that we were able to get a hold of these people. What's very clear is that although people love the song and it got, I can't remember how many hits it's got now, but it's getting over 600,000 hits. So it got a lot of really great publicity and people loved it. But the problem is it's not really reaching the rural areas where it ought to be heard because mm -hmm. it's on YouTube. They don't necessarily have internet. There's a lot of illiteracy. They may not be able to read. So the next step that I wanted to take was to get it out on radio. Radio is the right medium for development projects, for uh, communications for development. It's called C4D. It's radio because everybody gets radio. It's broadcast through all the rural areas in Africa and everywhere else in the world. And especially women listen to the radio, uh, men too, while driving, while working, people turn on a radio. Yeah, well, and as someone who's spent a good chunk of her career working in community radio, you know, it warms my heart to hear how the role of community radio um, in, in getting important messages out there to uh, communities, especially in, in rural areas. Well, we're going to uh, wrap up our time here. It's been amazing. I just have one final question for you, and mm -hmm. that is what's next for you? What can we expect in terms of your own work and research to see next? Oh boy, well, I didn't really talk about the um, Autonomous Adaptive Soundscape project, which is actually the most machine learning thing that I'm doing right now, which involves, uh, it's really uh, focused on health of individuals, critically ill individuals in the ICU, where uh, getting conscious feedback may be difficult. So the idea is to create a feedback loop measuring different biosignals, heart rate, blood pressure, um, skin conductance, um, heart rate variability, different things have been proposed. Taking those signals to a machine learning algorithm, which then decides what soundscape to play, play the soundscape, and then the, the loop is completed and you know the person's body responds. So it's a very interesting team project. It's tough to make it work, but we're, we're moving ahead with that. Uh, there are researchers in com computing science, faculty and students in health sciences, in nursing, in critical care, and in music therapy and in music. So that, that's one thing that I'm, I'm probably spending more time on than anything else. And the other one that I've been doing is I mentioned earlier social networks, or I worked in networks and computer networks that kind of struck and uh, kindled an interest in me in social networks. And I'm doing a project um, on looking at the relationships between collaborators in producing songs, especially in the Middle East. You have a singer, a composer, and a lyricist, and they're, you know, they're working together. If you map all of those connections, a composer is working with the poet who's also working with another composer, who's working with another poet, who's working with the singer and so on. So you get this network. And the question is, how has this network changed over the, over the decades? And in particular, where do women fit in? Because mostly with the advent of a music industry, women's role has been as singer. And I'll venture to say that's probably true to a large extent in Western pop music too, but it's very much true in Egyptian music, which is the primary study of my research. 
So I want to sort of look at that. Where where have women plugged into that system? Um, is it mostly as singers? How has that changed over time, over musical genre, and so on? So that's very exciting to me. It's a kind of a big data project, a social network project, involves the computing size of my brain, but also the ethnomusicology of Egypt, which is where I lived for more than six years, and I always go back to. So it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be fun. Those both sound amazing. I feel like we're going to have to check back in with you and, and get an update on both of those projects because they sure, sound please do. wonderful. Um, but in the meantime, I just want to say thank you so much, Dr. Frischkoff, for being here and for sharing a little bit about you and about the work that you're doing. Thanks so much. Thank you, Katrina. It's very nice talking to you and you had such uh, stimulating questions too. So I really enjoyed the conversation. AI for Society Dialogues is a co-production between AI for Society, a signature research area at the University of Alberta, and the Cool Institute for Advanced Studies. Find out more about AI for Society at AIforSociety.ca and the Cool Institute at kiosk.ualberta.ca. This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homelands of First Nations and Métis peoples. Our technical producer is Corey Stroder, and our theme music is Seeing the Future by Dexter Britton. Special thanks to Dr. Scott Smallwood and the Sound Studies Institute for providing recording space. Stay connected to AI for Society. Sign up for our newsletter at AIforSociety.ca. You can find out more about me, Katrina Ingram, at ethicallyalignedai.com.